Thanks, Aaron. Team. Well, good morning. Thanks for staying in town this weekend. Awesome. Way to go. Appreciate it. Um, you know, when our sons were really little, uh, we had this question that we would ask him, and I'm betting that a bunch of you did the same thing, but uh, uh, we would say, um, how big is Caleb? How big is Josh? How big is Aaron? And uh, you know what they said? So big. That's what we taught them. How big is Caleb? So big. How big is Josh? So big. How big is Aaron? So big. And, and we'd say that, and we would, we'd go through that little ritual with them because we wanted to remind them that, that they were little guys, but they were going to get big, and they, we wanted them to have confidence that someday they, were, they weren't going to be little guys anymore. They were going to be big guys. And, and then we'd also ask them this other question. I'd ask them, how much does dad love you? They would say, so much. Because I wanted them to grow up with the confidence, not only were they going to get big, but how loved they were and how important that was to us. Uh, I want them to be sure about those things. And so we're in our series, Oh, the Places We'll Go. And, and this morning, we want to look at this idea of how big God is. How big is God in, in our lives how big is Christ in your life? I'm convinced that, that the way we live is a consequence of the size of our God. The primary problem in our lives is, is that we're not convinced that we're absolutely safe in the hands of a fully competent, all-knowing, ever-present, utterly loving, infinitely big God. And even though we know that we're loved by God, we don't let that love give us the confidence to have peace. So if I wake up in the morning and I go through my day with a shrunken God, there's consequences. I'll live in a constant state of fear and anxiety because everything depends on me and my mood will be governed by whatever circumstances hit me that day. And if, I'll live with a, if I live with a shrunken God, I'll find it unnatural to pray when I have a need because I'm not really sure, to be honest, if God makes a difference and if prayer really matters. And if I live with a shrunken God, I'll become a slave to whatever other people think of me because I don't live in the security of God's big love in my life, and if I face a temptation to speak deceitful words in order to avoid trouble, I'll do it. Or if I get credit for something at work that I haven't earned, I don't trust there's a God who sees in secret and one day will reward, so I'll take care of that recognition. I'll make sure that I get it. When people shrink God, they pray without faith. They worship without awe, they serve without joy, they suffer without hope, and the result is a life of stagnation and fear, a loss of vision, and an inability to persevere and see things through. Whatever we need, God is bigger. And the message this morning is how big is Christ in your life? How big is God for you? What's it like, and what's it like to live with a God who is so big? We're going to look way back this morning at a great story, one that a lot of you probably heard uh, often in your lifetime. We're going to go all the way back to the book of Judges. There is a book in the Old Testament called Judges, by the way. And we're going to look at the sixth and seventh chapters of the book of Judges and the story of Gideon. Now, for a little context, this story takes place roughly around uh, 1221 B.C., 
So what that tells us is that this is 200 years before Israel is going to crown their first king. This is, uh, this is 220 years roughly before David will ascend the throne in Israel. Uh, this is 1,220 years before Christ is born. It's part of the ancient history of, of the people of Israel. They've arrived in, in the promised land, but as they arrive in the promised land, there are enemies all around them, among those the Midianites, and God does something big for his people. So we have this story. We have God um, showing people of Israel how big he is. Uh, so the, the, the nation of Israel have all of these enemies. They have all of these people around them. And uh, another thing that was going on uh, for Israel is that they had forgotten about God. They had forgotten how big God was. And many people in Israel were starting to worship uh, false gods. They were starting to worship idols. One of the primary gods that they were uh, beginning to worship was the god Baal. Uh, and, uh, and so their God takes his hand of care off of the people of Israel because he's going to give them a big lesson, a big reminder of who he is. And so Israel is now constantly being overrun by the Midianites and the Amalekites and, and these other tribes that live in the area. And so that when they grow their wheat, the, that a certain time after the harvest, the Midianites will come and they'll overrun the Israelites and they'll, they'll take all of their grain, they'll take all of their wheat uh, so that they can't sustain themselves, so they don't have food for the, the rest of the year. They take their cattle and their donkeys and their oxen. Uh, they destroy the economy in Israel. They destroy their national reputation, their nationalism. They take their freedom uh, away. And so now, after seven years of the Midianites continually raiding into Israel, Israel suddenly, it's what has what we call a come to Jesus moment, Israel suddenly turns back to God. You, you know, when, 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 when we find ourselves in messes and, and even the lessons that we create, which most of them we do, but when we find ourselves in mess, messes, usually there's one of two things that we do, right? Uh, one, the first thing that we might do is blame God. Come on, God, I'm one of the good guys. Why are you letting this happen to me? Why, does this, why did you let the, the Midianites come? Why did you let this tragedy happen in our lives? Or this, this occurrence, this circumstance in our lives causes us to turn back to God and say, God, forgive me, I've, I've wandered from you. I've not trusted you. Uh, you've, I've shrunk how big you are in my life and I need you now. And that's what happened to the Israelites. They began to pray, God, please do something. God, we know that we've walked away, but we need you now. We're in desperate trouble. And God heard their prayers. And so God sends a prophet and he tells the Israelites, I'm gonna take care of you. I'm going to, I'll remember you. I'm going to send a hero. I'm going to send a warrior. I'm going to send somebody to, to, to lead you into battle, to take care of all of this. And, and so I don't know about you, but when I think of a hero, somebody coming and they're going to charge in and they're going to right the wrongs, I think of like Jason Bourne, right? Batman, you know, maybe the Thor, you know, just got the big hammer going. I don't know. When you think about that hero, who, who do you you think of. You think of some sort of super person, some mighty warrior, and he's going to come. And so God says, I'm going to even do one better. I've got a guy. And he says, I'm going to send Gideon. 
And it says in Judges 6, 6, And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out to help from the Lord. And then in verse 11 it says, And now the angel of the Lord came and sat under a terebinth at Ophrah, not Oprah, but Ophrah, which belonged, see you are listening, which belonged to Joash, the Abzerite, uh, while, uh, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Now, this gives us a real clue to Gideon right off the, the top. Um, I, I've got a picture here of a winepress, and you can see the guys, you know, stomping on the grapes there, and the wine, um, as it becomes liquid, goes through and um, and it fills those various areas, and that's how they begin to make wine. But what you don't do and nobody does is you don't thresh wheat in a wine press. It's sort of like fishing in the daylight. You just didn't do it, right, back then? You don't thresh wheat in a wine press, but Gideon is afraid of the Midianites, and so he's hiding, and he's trying to thresh wheat where they can't see him in a wine press so that hopefully they'll miss him and they'll be able to keep some of their grain to feed their family uh, during the year. And so he's doing this in secret. He's doing this in hiding because of his fear um, of the Midianites. And so the first picture that we get of Gideon is doing something completely humiliating, completely backwards, that he is threshing wheat in a wine press because he's afraid of the Midianites. And an angel of the Lord came and he sat down under this oak, this tree, the, the terebinth tree looks almost exactly like an oak tree that belonged to Joash, who's um, the father of Gideon. Gideon's threshing wheat in a wine press. And the angel comes, uh, in verse 12, the angel appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. I love this. Here's what the angel is saying, that you, Gideon, are more than you think. You're hiding. You're threshing wheat in a wine press because you're afraid. And the angel just said, I know something about you that you don't even know. I know more about you than you think. There's more to you than you can imagine. But you, with God, because of God, you're going to be a mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our father recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. So the very first thing that Gideon says is, Wait a minute, God, I get all of that, but, but listen, if we're the good guys, then why did you forget us? Why did you let this stuff happen to us? And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midians as one man. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't give you know, Gideon an A-plus on self-image here. He'd found a way of viewing himself that would rationalize his passivity. He found, uh, he, he found a way to say no to God's great call in his life. He said, God, you got the wrong guy. Don't pick me. My tribe is the weakest of all of them, and I am the least in my family, so I am the bottom guy. I am the least likely guy. Nobody wrote in my yearbook, someday you're going to be a mighty man. Nobody wrote most likely to succeed. I'm the least of all of them. You got the wrong guy. Don't have high expectations for me, Lord, because I, I, don't, I don't 
deserve any of that. And God, God didn't say, go Gideon, your natural charm and your good looks are gonna be utterly sufficient for this task. He didn't say, you're strong enough and smart enough, Gideon, to figure this out, so go. What God said is, I will be with you and you will strike down the Midianites as if they were but one man. And this is the hinge on which everything turns, not just for Gideon, but also for you and me. That what is unthinkable and undoable on my own becomes unstoppable when it's God and me. What's unthinkable and undoable on my own becomes unstoppable when it's God and me. When I was uh, in high school, I, I, had, I was blessed by having big friends. And I'll never forget, I was walking Saguaro High School campus one day, and uh, there was a teacher, he was a shop teacher, and he had, a, he had a reputation among all the students for being a bully, just being a gruff old guy and kind of being a bully with little kids. And, and so I saw him one day and I was walking by and he had this little kid and he pulled him out and he was shaking him and he was, I don't even know what he was saying, he was yelling at this kid and you could tell this kid was just petrified. And so I thought to myself, okay, I need, what do I, what do, I do here, you know? And, and so I walked up to the teacher and um, I said, I really think you need to stop picking on this kid. And uh, the, the teacher looked and he took a step back and then he said something, I don't actually remember what he said, he just said something and then he left. He went back in the building and I thought, phew, that worked. That's pretty good, you know, kind of rolled the shoulders. And then I started to turn around and I realized that my friend Wayne, who's 6'4", 235 pound senior in high school, who was a high school All-American football player, was standing right behind me. And the teacher wasn't looking at me, he saw my friend Wayne and decided, ah, I think I'll go inside. Uh, but I realized that, that it wasn't me that he was intimidated by. But if I could get Wayne to walk behind me all of the time, that I would have something going there. That was, a pretty, that was a pretty cool thing. That was a great idea that if I could maybe have a giant friend with me 24-7, I would take a completely different approach to life. Maybe you'd go right some other wrongs. I would have a fundamentally different approach and the writer of scripture poses this question for me and for you and it's simply this, how big is your God? One who is greater than your biggest friend has come. One who's bigger than even Big Wayne in your life has come and you don't have to wonder whether or not he'll show up because he's always there. You don't have to thresh your wheat in a wine press. You have a great God, a big God, and he has called you to do something really important, so get on with it. God told Gideon to begin by tearing down an altar that was built to Baal, the God Baal, the God that the Midianites and many other people in ancient Mesopotamia worshiped. And in Judges 6, starting at verse 25, it says, That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, and 
pull down the altar that Baal your father has and cut down the Asherah. It was a pole that is built beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid uh, in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah pole that you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. And so here's what God says. Here's the first thing you need to do. You need to take down that idol. You need to take down that statue of Baal. You need to make a statement that we are going to worship the true God, that we're no longer gonna bow down to this false God. And so the very first thing I want you to do is that we need to tear down that idol of Baal and I want you to offer an offering to God on that site. And Gideon said, yes, and I'm gonna do it at night when nobody can see me. And I can't get into trouble because that wasn't a statue, that wasn't an idol that the Midianites had built and put there, but it was built by his own dad. And Gideon was so afraid of his own family and the men of town that he went out at night to tear it down. He went out to do the deed in the dark so hopefully nobody would find out who did it and he wouldn't get into trouble. But God had other plans for him Baal was a tribal god. He was worshipped and associated with prostitution, sexual immorality, tied up to the notion of fertility and making the earth fertile by the practice of uh, immoral, immoral acts. There was no connection between the worship of Baal and virtues like justice or righteousness or holiness or conviction of sin. None of that. Baal worship was riddled with superstition and involved infant sacrifice. Think about the life of one child and what that one life means to us and think about the lives that were thrown away by the thousands in an act of worship to Baal. It was a very dark time and God said the worship of Baal has to end. Baal is not God. So God chose Gideon to tear down the, uh, the altar to Baal and, there's a, and, and he says, even though it's your very own father that put it up, I'm giving you a command to take it down. And that's what Gideon did that night. That's what started everything. But here's what's really interesting is that you take 10 servants with you, word's gonna leak out when the men of the town found out that it was Gideon that had done that. It was Gideon that had led them out there. Uh, they came against Gideon and they went to his dad, Joash, and they said, bring Gideon out to us because Gideon's life was gonna be forfeited for what he had done. They were gonna kill him for what he had done. And, and his father had a great response. He said, you know what? Let's let Baal take care of this. If this is about Baal, let Baal punish Gideon, but not you guys. Baal, if he's a real God, then Baal will take care of himself. Let's let him do this. And so Joash wouldn't let the men of the town take his son. And God was already at work reminding Gideon who was fighting the battle, who was going to war for him at this point. And in the sixth chapter, starting at verse 33, it says, Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan, and they encamped at the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord, I love this line, the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the, and the Abzerites uh, were called out to follow him. And so here's what happens. Now we find that the Midianites and the Amalekites and, and others from the east, they all began to gather. They, they're all their armies began to circle around the Israelites. And it says that God clothed 
Gideon with power, that God came upon Gideon. It was his power, it was God's power, and that Gideon blew a trumpet, and the armies of God, the armies of the Israelites began to gather together to do battle against the Midianites. So it's this great scene that's about to take place. It's an awesome thing. Here suddenly Gideon, who's the least of his clan, the least of his family, but God gives him power. He blows the trumpet, and and the, the army of God comes, and Gideon though in the middle of all of that you'd think he'd be feeling pretty excited but Gideon is still afraid and so he says God I have I want to make sure that you're really into this I really want to make sure that you're really going to do what you say so I'm going to put out a fleece you ever heard of a fleece it's this great Old Testament thing this is the only place that it happened is a fleece here Gideon says okay God here's what I'm going to do I'm going to put out this fleece and in, in a, it's a piece of wool, and, and if, if, if I come out tomorrow morning and the fleece is damp with dew, but everything around it's dry, then I'm gonna know. All right, we're in, let's go, let's do this thing. Next morning he goes out, fleece is a little damp, everything else is dry. Gideon says, okay, I got another idea. How about tomorrow morning if I come out and the fleece is dry and everything around it's damp from the dew, then I'll really know. And so he sets out this fleece and, and God does it. And so from then on, people have talked about, and the church talked about fleeces. And well, I set out a fleece before the Lord, but here's the thing about that, here's the problem, is that the fleece was a symbol of Gideon's doubt. That is God really big enough to do this? Is God really serious about this? Is he gonna get me out there and then he's gonna leave me to get squashed by the Midianites? I mean, is this really gonna work? And so he's offering a, a fleece out of fear, out of doubt for God, not out of faith. And, and when we offer fleeces for God, it's a, it's a way to sort of say, okay, God, I, I think you're telling me the truth. I think you really do things, but I'm not really sure. I need to make sure. I don't quite trust you enough. I'm not quite sure if you're big enough. So, so let's try this. There's a great... Um, writer and, and speaker, um, Ken Davis, that t- tells a story about the guy that's, you know, driving by the Dunkin' Donuts, and, and he says to God, he says, God, you know, if there's a parking space right in front of this Dunkin' Donuts, then I'm going to know that you want me to go in and get a donut today. <laughs> and, and so he says, and the fifth time around the block, there it is. <laughs> okay, God, and you really want me to have several donuts, right? And, and that's kind of how we we live, we sort of keep circling the block until we get the answer that we want and we call that a fleece and God's saying, no, I'm bigger than all of that. God was bigger than all of that that day. And so Gideon uh, blows the trumpet and he calls, in chapter seven, Gideon calls the men to war and he recruited 32,000 soldiers to help him. 32,000 soldiers come to support Gideon. This is like one problem. There's 135,000 Midianites and Amalekites and, and those other soldiers from the east. So we have a numbers problem. There's a four to one ratio problem here. There are four times more of their soldiers than the Israelite soldiers. Gideon's outnumbered. And God came to Gideon and the enemy has 135,000 troops and you have 32,000 troops and you've got number problems. And Gideon said something like, God, I'm so glad to hear you say that because 
because I was afraid you were going to make me go into battle outnumbered four to one. And, and God said no to Gideon. He said, no, you don't need to worry about that. You don't, you don't even need that many soldiers because this is my battle. And so I, I want you to send some home. And uh, because 135,000 to you know, 32, that's not even a challenge for God. And so God says, I want you to make an announcement that anybody that's afraid can just leave. Any of you guys that are afraid, that's okay. Go on home. And so Gideon says, oh, you know, he makes that announcement and all but 10,000 leave. Okay, Gideon says, okay, God, we have a bigger problem now. We have a 13 to 1 ratio problem now. That they have 135,000 and I only have 10,000. And in Judges 7, starting verse 4, it says this, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I'll test them for you there. And, and anyone of, of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone that I say, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall um, set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, uh, you'll set them to themselves. And the number of those people who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths with 300 men, but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below them in the valley. So here's what God said. He said, 10,000 is way too many for me, Gideon. I got another test. I got something else I want you to do. So I want you to take them all down to the water. Tell them to get a drink. And some of the guys are going to just get down maybe on one knee and they're going to scoop up water in their hands and they're going to just kind of lick it. They're going to lap it like a dog from their hands. And, and those are the ones that, that you, you're going to put in one group. And then you got, you got another group and they're going to get all on all their hands and knees and they're just going to get their face right in the water and they're going to drink water like that. And, and I want you to put them in another group. And so Gideon's thinking, well, at least I've got, you know, 9,700 left. Mm, no, I want you to take the 300. That's the army that I want you to have because here's what's going to happen when this is over. You're going to know that it's my power you're going to know that I've saved my people. You're going to know that I've done this. No one else is going to be able to get the credit, but you're going to know that the God who loves you, the God who created you, has been at work here. That he showed up in the middle of your catastrophe. He showed up in the middle of your fear. He showed up in the middle of your circumstances. And it's by the power of God that this is going to happen. God didn't need all of Gideon's men to win the battle. And now the Midian soldiers outnumber the Israelites 450 to 1. And those are odds that God loves. Because then we have to completely trust him. God had a reason for this. He gave Gideon one more sign. He said, Gideon, I want you to take another step. Something else is going to happen. And we begin to get a picture of that in chapter 7, verse 9. It says, the same night the Lord said to him, arise and go against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. But if you're afraid, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, who is armor bearer, 
And you shall hear what they say, and afterwards your hands will be strengthened to go against the camp. So then he, he went down with Pura his servant to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp, and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels uh, were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. I get it, God, were outnumbered. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream. And a, behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and it turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hands the Midian and all the camp. And as soon as Gideon heard this, the, heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped and he returned to the camp of Israel and he he said, Arise, the Lord has given the host of Midian into our hands. And so here's what happens. Word of that something was going on had already hit the Midian camp, that they had already heard that 32,000 soldiers showed up and God winnowed it down to 10. He said, I don't need that many to win this battle. And then word got out that God had winnowed it down to 300 and said, I'm doing something here and we don't even need 10,000. With 300 men, we can win this battle with 300 men. We're going to conquer the Midianites, that we're going to conquer the people that have been savaging God's people. And word had started to creep into the camp. They'd started to hear stories. They're superstitious. They'd started wondering what's going to happen. There's some sort of secret weapon. This is getting scary. They're all talking about it. They're all becoming afraid that something is going on. Why would they only have 300 men to go against our whole army? That their God is up to something. So already, before the battle even begins, God is sowing fear into the hearts of the Midianites. And when Gideon hears this, he takes heart. And he goes back and he tells his folks, all right, it's time to go. He worships God and he returns to camp and he says, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hands. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and he put trumpets in the hands of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. So listen to what Gideon does. He says, All right, God is going to give this into our hands. And so here's the strategy. I'm going to break you into three groups of 100. Remember, we're going against 135,000. This is going to be awesome. Uh, and you can't... You're you're going to have your hands full so you can't hold a sword when you go but what you're going to hold is a trumpet which is really effective in a sword fight and you're going to take a trumpet and then you're going to be carrying this jar that has a torch inside of it and so this is going to be awesome and we're going to go and we're going to surround them we're going to go surround the Midianites only God can think of this all right this isn't how I would have approached the battle I'm thinking howitzers tanks planes flying over. This is how God does it. So Gideon, verse 19, and the 300 men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and they smashed the jars that were in their hands 
so that when the jars were smashed, the torches flared up. So now all of a sudden the Midianites hear 300 trumpets just blasting in the middle of the night and the, the jars are broken and the lights suddenly come on all around them and it strikes chaos in the Midian camp. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all of the army ran and they cried out and they fled uh, when they saw what was going on that immediately in the Midianite camp there's panic, there's fear, they start killing each other in their pandemonium, in their panic, in their fear, they start slaying each other, they start fighting with each other, and they panic, and they run, and they flee, and God gives Israel the victory with 300 men without carrying a sword, with a trumpet, and a pitcher with a torch in it, and God brings them victory. And the Lord said, every, in verse 22, they blew 300 trumpets, and the Lord said, every man's sword against his comrade and against the army, and the army fled. They fled as far as they could, as fast as they could, and the Midianites and the Amalekites were defeated, and, be, and the Israelites saw the hand of God. The Israelites saw what God had done. You know, think about this process. God calls Gideon, Gideon says, God, I'm not good enough, I'm not strong enough. And what he's really saying is, God, I'm not sure if you're big enough for this. And God says, Lord, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this work. I'm gonna make you big. I'm gonna show you how big I am. Uh, you are gonna be a mighty man of valor. I'm gonna use you in ways that you never dreamed. And then he says, the very first thing that we're going to do is we're going to break down the altars. We're going to break down the worshiping of Baal. We're going to say this is going to happen no more. This is not going to take place. That there are points in our lives when we find ourselves in circumstances that are beyond our control, that we find ourselves in places that are so frightening, they're so overwhelming, they seem so big. And God says, here's the first thing I want you to do. I want you to start getting rid of, I want you to start destroying all of those things that you've been worshiping in your life all of those things that you thought were really important, all of those things that you thought would give you real identity and real purpose and, and that you would make, make you something. I want you to start stripping those things out of your life because I'm gonna show you that I'm big enough, that it's really me, it's God in my, your life, it's God in my life. And things around you can be swirling out of control, but there's an inner reality that God is enough. He really is. And I think this is why the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4 said that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He is in prison in Rome. He doesn't know if he's going to live one day or the next. He's going to know he's going to be crucified or boiled or beaten or what's going to happen to him. But he says that no matter the circumstances, I can do all things because his God was big enough. His God was great. And he said, I can do all things through God who strengthens me. Nobody else can give that kind of peace to you. Your circumstances or your natural abilities, they can't give you that kind of peace. This peace comes from God. And if you don't know Jesus, then I think this is a word for you. God is saying to you today, Christ is saying to you today, I am bigger than your problems. I'm bigger than your failures. I'm bigger than your regrets. And many though they may be, I am bigger than your sin and your guilt. If you'll let me, if you'll try me, if you'll open the door of your heart, I will come into your life and I will be your forgiver and I will be your strength and I will be your friend. God is big enough. And only Jesus makes possible the big God life 
because it's only on the cross that we see the God who is bigger than our sin and our guilt and our regret. And it's in the empty tomb from which Jesus came forth that we see a God who is bigger than death itself. Only God is big enough in our lives. No matter how hard we try. And you know, sometimes I think we get confused because we, we think about God wanting to do great things. God wanting to be big enough in our lives. And we, we sort of think God doing a great thing, like there's nothing great in my life. There's nothing really big in, in my life. And, and because we sort of bought into this whole idea that, that God doing something great means that we should, that we'd get famous, right? That we'd get recognized, that we'd get known, that it's something that's so big that everybody would hear about it, it'd be all over social media. That's how God does big things. That's what a big thing looks like. A big thing is something that everybody else hears about. But that's not what God is saying here. God is saying that he wants us to understand that wherever he puts us, whatever battle that he places us in, he wants us to understand that it's about him, that it's about his power, that it's about him being big enough. It has nothing to do with us and it has nothing to do with being recognized or being famous or being known, but we don't know when we trust God, when we believe in God, when we step out and what God has called us to do, we don't know what God's gonna do with it. Gideon had no idea that about 2,200 years, 3,200 years later, we were gonna be reading his story. He had no idea what the ramifications of his faith was gonna be. We don't know when we obey God. We don't know when we trust God. What's gonna happen with that? That's up to God as well. And we can't just buy into the, that, okay, I, there's nothing great in me. That's what Gideon said. And God said, wait a minute. I'm, I know more about you than you do and you are a mighty man because I'm gonna clothe you in my power and I'm gonna show you what I can do when a life is turned over to me. God knows about the Midianites in your life. He knows about your worries. He knows about your kids. He knows about what you've lost. He knows about all the mistakes, all the messes in your life. He knows about your job. He knows, he knows, he knows all of it. He knows where you're stagnant. He knows where your dreams have died. But he has better dreams for you. If you ask him, he will be a bigger presence in your life than you've ever known. So the question is, how big is God this morning? How big is your God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful of this story of Gideon that reminds us, Lord, not of what we can accomplish, but how big you are and what you can accomplish in, in a life that, 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 that's yielded, that turns to you, Lord. Lord, in spite of Gideon's fear, in spite of how he thought of himself, Lord, you said, Gideon, with me, you're bigger than you can imagine. Through me, you're gonna do more than you ever dreamed. Lord, that's what you're calling us to today. That's what you believe about us. That's how much you love us, Lord, and we thank you for that, and we give you praise, and we acknowledge that again this morning. Lord, we love you, and we give you all the glory and all the honor for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.